So I've been a fisheries reporter interested in food systems and restaurants and culinary culture probably for about a decade when I came to this topic. And partially it was that no species, no one creature could kind of encapsulate a lot of what I was seeing in terms of climate, in terms of, you know, globalization and the industry and the history of the fisheries kind of sector. But when I found this one fish and this one fisherman that their their lives are kind of knit together through the course of the book, I, I feel like I had cracked something that bluefin tuna could be the key that would kind of unlock everything. You talk about um, bluefin tuna as a grand piano shaped nuclear weapon. <laughs> what is it that makes this species quite so impressive and, and quite so charismatic? Yeah, I think size, you know, you think of elephants, you think of, you know, big majestic birds, you know, tuna are kind of in that charismatic megafauna realm. And then there's something almost alien about them simply because they get so large in the ocean and, but we rarely get to see them. It's kind of, that's their realm and land is ours and that there's not a lot of overlap. And so to see one out of its environment, um, that's where the name Kings of Their Own Ocean comes from, a Pablo Neruda poem that's at the beginning of the book. And it's this idea that that the tuna is the king of its realm, but you know, when it encounters air, it's kind of stripped of all that evolutionary kind of the marvelous way it evolved, right? With its speed and its dorsal fins that tucks into slots along its body. You know, it has this incredible, it's almost like a heat pump in its gills that allows it to warm its brain, warm its eyes, warm its muscles. And that's what allows it to, to enter the open ocean, feed so widely and, and migrate so widely as well. Um, you talk about not being a fish person, but yet here we are <laughs> <laughs> talking about Here we fish. are talking about a fish. <laughs> so what drew you to yeah. the story of Amelia in particular? You should maybe tell us who Amelia is or what Amelia yeah, is. So, um, yeah, so Amelia is a fish. Again, a sentence I never thought I would say. Amelia was a fish that was tagged uh, by a little plastic fish tag in 2004 by uh, an American fisherman named Al Anderson. And I found out about Amelia when uh, a female bluefin scientist named Molly Lutkovich, she does work in Hawaii and she does work along the U.S. Northeast. She called me on the phone when I was in grad school living in New York and she said, you know, you wouldn't believe about this fish. Let me tell you about this fish. And she was extremely excited. And I didn't have a clue <laughs> what she was saying or about fish tagging. But but again, you kind of get that journalistic spidey sense, right? That, that maybe there's more here. And as I learned about Molly Lutkovich's work, tagging these fish all around the world, as I learned about Al Anderson, he had recently passed away, but, you know, people would write about him on blogs. You know, some people loved him, some people hated him. And he really did remind me of, of my own father who had recently passed away, who, who loved fishing. That was kind of my connection to fishing was that I, I grew up doing it with my dad. And I think I realized that for people who 
don't take to the ocean naturally. You know, you meet people and they say, oh, I, I don't eat fish. I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in seafood, you know, that, that I wanted this to be a book that would kind of capture their imagination and they could fall in love with Al and maybe see the, the bluefin tuna through his eyes. Um, and Amelia, ultimately this one fish that he tagged and then Molly Lutkovich tagged this fish blasted across the Atlantic ocean spawned 14 years after that first initial tagging grew from the size of about a an American football to 700 pounds in the Mediterranean when she was captured in a set net off the coast of Portugal and killed and eventually sold you know into the market in Madrid for you know likely sashimi or sushi or Japanese food and so you know it's it's this line that there are kind of American bluefin tuna and European bluefin tuna, and that the science on that is so fixed. But, you know, that's such human hubris, this idea that we can, you know, draw a line down the middle of the Atlantic and expect the fish to follow the border, right? Why is she called Amelia? Oh, so of course, for Amelia Earhart, um, the famous American uh, aviator. And as I write in the book, um, she crossed the Atlantic on on currents of a different kind. And one of the the places in the book, it's called Wedgeport, Nova Scotia. It's kind of the birth of big game fishing in in at least this part of the world. And Amelia Earhart visited back in the 1930s before she went missing. And so there's kind of this, and and in some ways I tried to honor the memory of say environmentalist Rachel Carson or a lot of the women who've been anglers for hundreds of years who largely are erased in this industry you know this my main character is yes a, a male fisherman but there's so many women's stories in the book and and um although I do have a note at the beginning most of the women I met who catch bluefin commercially they all insisted that I call them fishermen. And so there's a note in the book. I, you know, some people get around that issue saying fishers or fisherwomen. They were very clear they wanted to be called fishermen. And so I tried to respect them in, in the work that way. Yeah, I noticed that note. Um, why was it? What was their kind of reasoning behind wanting to be fishermen and called that? Yeah, it's such an interesting issue because, you know, in so many other spheres of life, having your gender acknowledged, you know, having it honored has become kind of de rigueur, right? But in that field, they say, you know, I do the same work. You know, my dad, very often it comes from family lineage. They'll say, well, my father was a fisherman. I too am a fisherman. You know, they see it not, it's almost its own word, right? It's, it's an identity as much as it is a description of, of who a person is and what they do. Hmm. Um. Tell us a little bit about some of the characters in the book. When we're talking about the women, maybe we'll stick with that first. Who are some of the characters um, that particularly stick out for you and I guess bring the story alive for you? Yeah, so the first one for me was Daryl Anderson. Daryl Ann, she was Al's wife. She's now his widow. And it's one of the most intense relationships I've ever developed with a source. You know, I, at one point in reporting this book, she invited me to stay at her house, which 
in my investigative journalistic life, you know, I would never consider. Um, but, you know, eventually I stayed with her and that led to moments like me picking her husband, her late husband's favorite mug out of the back of her cabinet. You know, you get all these kind of spooky coincidences. Um, but she herself had a, a first husband. She ran the marina in the town where they met. She was so strong. She raised her daughters and his career, Al's career would not have happened without her. And so it seems insane to me that in, you know, a lot of the books written about Bluefin Tuna are written by dudes and starring only dudes. And dudes are great, but they're only a part of the story, right? You know, the reason I was able to find so much of the documentation of this one fish and the tag number was because of Daryl's immaculate record keeping. She every day he would Al would come back from being out on the water, and he'd have these scribbled notes in his logbook, and she would sit down and she would write a, an entry for every single day he went fishing. That's thousands and thousands of fishing trips she kind of dutifully wrote down in the book in order to help him accumulate this data. Um, then another example would be a woman named Margaret Perry, who is a, a documentary filmmaker here in Canada in the kind of mid-century. And again, you know, her husband passes away. She pulls herself up by her bootstraps. She teaches herself how to make these incredible films. And she made a film about what happened in Wedgeport in here in Nova Scotia. And so it screened internationally. You know, the, the women's stories in this book are, you know, not compelling because they're women's stories, but they're untold because they're women's stories. And, you know, frankly, I think a lot of this territory, when it's trodden by other people with other identities, they're looking for other stuff. You know, I, I really, this feels like a, a sense of justice. And then I guess, finally, in terms of the characters, um, you have two, you know, strong, powerful female bluefin scientists. And it is one of the great tragedies of this book and of this field, frankly, one of them is named Barbara Block. She's a, quite a famous bluefin scientist. She's based in California. And the other is Molly Lutkovich. And, you know, they're both quite high achieving. They both, they've had run-ins in the past. And, but they came up in a field when, you know, there can only be one woman, right? You can only, that there's only room enough for one. And it ended and, you know, I don't want to ruin the ending, but, you know, there are some real consequences from this idea that the behavior, I think, that would be tolerated in the workplace if it was coming from a man, it, it just was not, it was not acceptable in this context. And it led to a lot of strife. Um, one, and I guess the next notable character, and I really do want to bring him up because I think it's relevant is the environmentalist Carl Safina. Um, you might be familiar with his book, Song for the Blue Ocean. He's um, a really incredible guy. And I was lucky enough to spend time with him at his Montauk cottage uh, in New York state and with his barking dogs and his library. And it was quite outrageous. Mm. Um, this was, um, the, uh, this is, here's a little funny story. Um, I showed up, it was the middle of winter in you know remote New England, 
and I didn't have anything for dinner. And I said, Carl, where can, you know, I had, we had a mid-afternoon interview and I said, where can I eat for dinner? And he was like, well, like I, I have this cooler and there's a single egg and some sad looking kale and some bluefish. I smoked myself. And I said, well, you go away. I'm a trained cook. And by the time he came back, I made him a gorgeous kale Caesar salad with this fish on the top. And I think, you know, th these are the moments that it takes to earn our sources trust, you know, and, and he shared stories with me that are in the book that he has never shared ever before. Mm. And so there's a kind of intimacy, I think, to the work, a kind of honesty of pulling together all these disparate threads that was truly one of the great joys of my life, for sure. You're listening to Afternoons on RNZ National. My guest is Karen Pynchon, uh, who has recently uh, written this extraordinary book about tuna. Um, I guess I'm interested in knowing more about Al Anderson as well, because he's a real central character here. And he was the he was the first to tag Amelia. Yeah, so he first, um, a little bit of backstory about him. He grew up quite poor. His mother had an undiagnosed mental health problem. And even when he was a really young boy, he would, he started fishing and, you know, he's kind of fished as a way to give his life rhythm. And he started tagging largemouth bass uh, when he lived in Long Island, um, just with copper wire, because he was catching the same bass again and again and again. And this was in 1961 when, which predated a lot of the kind of formal academic tagging programs but he you know he just had this this wire and he would tie it kind of like you would tie what uh, twist tie around the top of a bread bag and he started tagging in the 60s and met quite a famous bluefin tuna scientist named Frank Mather in the 50s um and Al started tagging for him and he did over his lifetime he tagged more than 60,000 fish the majority of those were striped bass, but more than 5,000 were Atlantic juvenile bluefin tuna. And that's like more than have has ever been tagged and more than ever will likely be tagged by one person ever again. Um, and like, for instance, the day that he tagged Amelia, they tagged more than 50 individual small fish. And, but the thing is, is that once this tag goes into the ocean, you know, what's a needle in a haystack? There's so many factors you need. The records have to be clear. Very often the fisherman who catches the fish with the tag in it, you know, they need to know, you know, why it matters that they report that data. So to have a tag like the one that was in Amelia last for that period of time from, from Al to Molly and then Molly to 11 years later showing up in Europe, you know, that is that is a remarkable data point and mm. it's and it's part of this data that's being increasingly fed into these better models that as i get to in the book you know are starting to truly save this species that for a very long time the global community was pretty convinced its days were numbered mm. what do we learn from amelia and from her story we learn and, and to me, this is kind of the beautiful, spooky thing about this story is that, you know, as much as we can know, there's so much that we don't know. 
I spent so much time learning about bluefin tuna, but ultimately those 11 years that she went dark, you know, those were her years, right? Those were, oh, they're, they're, they're private. They're almost veiled in a way that I will never be able to penetrate. But that just because we don't have data, just because we don't have, you know, a hard number or figure to rely on, doesn't mean we shouldn't protect these creatures. You know, if anything, the mystery should encourage us to take that kind of precautionary approach that allows the fish to recover and kind of live in a sustainable level. Um, and I guess ultimately, I think it's this idea that that we all play a large role in determining what our choices are individually and that those choices made individually can have these huge collective consequences and and getting people to think a little bit about their own choices and how it plays a role in in how they interact with their environment and with their food systems. Mm. For you, uh, what has changed by Mm. looking into this area and into reporting the story in the book? Mm. I think every time I eat bluefin tuna, which I do now, um, I'm always very careful that it's rod and real caught or harpooned. I, for instance, won't eat long-lined bluefin tuna because that's still kind of one of these kind of gray areas in terms of what the impact is. Um, I think when I eat it, I do it with a more of a sense of reverence. You know, you sit down with your sashimi and, you know, having seen a fish being broken down, you know, seeing that transition from living to fuel. And then reading, I go into a lot of the the history of the culture of, of humanity's relationship with bluefin tuna and you know, it has fueled us for millennia. And there's a kind of, um, kind of, I don't know, spiritual feeling, I guess it sounds so cheesy, but like a real kind of gratitude for the fish. Um, and, and just to talk a little bit about, you know, your neck of the woods, so much of that, it has only been made possible because a lot of the best, most kind of groundbreaking environmental work in terms of protecting bluefin tuna has happened with the the southern bluefin mm. population the the tanis makoi which is the one that that's down where you guys are and you know the atlantic bluefin is arguably many times more you know lucrative and contentious but you know the data that came out of the harvest strategies that are used to protect the southern bluefin that won a lot of trust and is why last year at the end of the year, the harvest strategies were passed for Atlantic bluefin as well. And so, you know, that there's an example, you know, you have a group of people in in a part of the world that, you know, they're just doing what they think is right. And then that can set the agenda globally, right? Mm. It's, it's a really beautiful thing. Yeah. We have the Southern bluefin down here. How different is it? to the fish that you've been writing about? Yeah, so this is so interesting. So it's, like I said, the the species name is Tunis Makoyi, and it's smaller. It's significantly smaller. So it only can, it gets to about 260 kilos. Um, And so it matures later. That can have, you know, effects on the species, but they also um, can live longer. Um, So it, it... a lot of it just depends on those like specific evolutionary places, I guess. Um, 
but yeah, the, it's amazing to think that the, the Bali procedure, this was this agreement in 2011, you know, it was intended to quadruple the abundance of Southern bluefin tuna. And at the time it had gone down to 5% of, of what it was at that point. And then by 2020, it had, you know, quotas doubled, you know, and so this is a great situation where, you know, the fishermen are happy because they can, you know, plan their budgets for, you know, how many fish are they going to catch it this year? How many will they catch next year? It has benefits for recreational fishers um, and all on the backdrop of the species abundance increasing. You know, this is one of these like weird, hopeful win, win, win stories. And, you know, wouldn't it be beautiful if we could, you know, take some of the lessons learned here and apply it to say climate, mm. you know, or, or biodiversity, you know, it was really, I was expecting this to be a bad news book. And so to find these gorgeous humans and creatures and maybe a hopeful takeaway, you know, that I feel very lucky that that, that was the story I, I ultimately discovered and got to write. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you see as the future here? What does that hold for the fish? Moderation. I think the future is moderation, you know, and and being careful that everything we're doing is on a context of a climate that is warming way too fast for us to understand really what's happening. I think the fact that the tuna can migrate such huge distances, you know, every fish fishery scientist I talked to said, you know, I do not worry about bluefin tuna. I worry about herring or I worry about, you know, yellow eye rockfish. There's all these other species. Tuna are, have kind of faded away from the public consciousness. Now, as in the, as you would read in the book, is that the instant that, that public diligence kind of fades away, that's when bad actors sometimes enter the void. And so I would say to, to keep tuna in this beautiful moment of reverence and respect and and still, you know, asking your local sushi restaurant where they get their bluefin, you know, finding out how it had was caught and harvested and learn a little bit more about that fish and kind of the systems by which it got to you. And that's, it's, it sounds dorky, but it's really, really nice to know that when you're consuming something. Hey, Karen, thank you so much for your time today and for talking to us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on.